Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hey everyone, it's Nick here, and I just wanted to take a quick second before we get into today's episode to remind everybody that we are launching a five-day challenge in March. So if you are an investor or trying to become an investor looking to level up, then you should join because you get access to an exclusive online community where we're doing live lessons on deal underwriting, market analysis, and financing solutions. And the best part is it's all free. Oh, and you also get a chance to win a prize valued over $3,800. So see you in there. And of course, enjoy today's episode. Thanks. Okay, welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today we have myself, Daniel Foch. We also have Nick Hill, and we have a special guest who goes by the name of Gregor Craigie, um, who I would like to kindly introduce. We're very excited. We have a couple of copies of his book to give away to listeners. So stay tuned for details on how you can get your hands on one of those. But before we dive into the contents of the book, which is coming out in March, could we just get a little bit of an introduction on yourself, uh, Gregor, for those who are listening who may not know who you are? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's good to be with you. Uh, I am, in a nutshell, I'm a, a generalist a journalist. I worked and have worked for, for the last 20 years or so for CBC Radio in Victoria, BC, one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. <laughs> and uh, before that, I lived in Vancouver, bought my first house 20 years ago. It'll be coming up in a couple of months. My wife and I 20 years ago in Vancouver, and we thought we had committed financial suicide. Like we thought we had sunk ourselves by spending the grand total of $305,000 on a single family home. But that we can come back to that if you want. But uh, that, that's my housing history 20 years ago as a journalist. My wife, a teacher, two very middle class jobs. We bought our first house. Uh, and I have been, uh, I've worked at a few other places along the way. I used to work at the BBC World Service in London where I was a renter for about three or four years, never thought I could afford to own a house in the city of London. And I was looking forward in the late 90s and early noughts when I was in London to coming back to Canada and being able to afford a house. And the last couple of years I was there, I started looking at Vancouver, where I used to live and where I was going to go back to. And I noticed, this is around 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, you could look, This is the, these are the early days of the internet, and I was looking, just as a journalist, uh, covering everything around the world, all sorts of news, uh, I was looking as a personal uh, thing at the internet and watching property prices in Vancouver go up and up and up and up and thinking, wait, wait a minute, am I about to get priced out here? So by the time we finally bought in 2004, as I say, we thought we had reached the peak of the market. It would never go higher. But uh, yeah, that's the long story short. I'm a a journalist who's covered everything. I've interviewed thousands of people over the last 20 years as the host of a morning radio show on CBC, from prime ministers to premiers, individual homeowners, homeless people. I've literally interviewed hundreds of homeless people face-to-face out on the streets. Uh, everything and anything. Kind of a jack-of-all-trades and, and a master of none. And I've been writing books uh, for the last few years. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called On Borrowed Time. Uh, North America's next big quake, because I became a little bit obsessed, you might say, with earthquakes. And I wanted to try to make sense of it all. And, and it turned out writing a nonfiction book about it was the best way to make sense of it. And the book did pretty well. It was on the Globe and Mail's uh, top 100 books for 2021. And it was a finalist for a few prizes, including the, the Balsillie Prize for Public Policy, the Jim Balsillie sponsors. And, uh, and then uh, about a year later, 
uh, I was, I, I'd been following housing for years. And one day I, you know, in January, I guess it was 2022, I ripped open my BC assessment of this old house you see behind me, this ramshackle old 110 year old house. And uh, I saw the assessment at $1.3 million and it's now <laughs> $1.5 million. And I felt rich for about a moment. And then I realized, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, guys, I thought my kids are screwed. Like, how, how are they ever going to afford a house in the future? So that was kind of the impetus of this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to go back that, that 20 years to 2004 when you, when you bought your first house for, you know, that whopping 300 and something thousand dollars. And, uh, now, you know, you're lucky to find that anywhere, especially in, you know, the GTA, the greater Vancouver area, the lower mainland, Victoria, as you said, these are all the most expensive markets. So, you know, it's, it's funny to, to go back and look at the perspective back then of thinking you're priced out only to fast forward 20 years and, you know, add a, add a one in front of that or a zero behind yeah. it and, uh, and, and see how, how extreme things have gotten in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I even mentioned this to my kids. They said, how could you possibly have thought that 305000 was crazy and that you, why didn't you know you, you, you weren't getting a good deal? And I said, because when I moved to Vancouver as a student, like eight years before that, I could have bought that house for, I don't know, 130000 Like it had more than doubled in my fairly short memory as a 30-year-old. And that's why I thought, you know, I was 30 years old buying my first house. And I thought, I, I got a bad feeling about this. But we did it. And the only thing that convinced us in the end was the cheapest house in the city of Vancouver. In the end, we bought it and we thought, well, at least we'll be safe for five years. We can afford this fixed rate mortgage for five years. We think we'll just sort of hope it'll be fine. And then, of course, five years later, the whole world can change as far as we were concerned because everything was so much more expensive. So you followed that uh, that time-tested advice of buying the, the worst house in the best neighborhood with the best neighborhood being Vancouver, I suppose, which is good. Yeah. Absolutely. Because yeah. it was the, like literally, I'm not exaggerating, the cheapest house in the city of Vancouver. And the only reason it hadn't sold was because uh, somebody had agreed to buy it for 330 and they had found in the home inspection a cracked sewage, uh, you know, a main sewer uh, line out in the in the crawl space. So somebody walked away and the buyer was desperate. He was going through a divorce, going to go home to Newfoundland. He said, look, look, just here. He was fully transparent. Here's the problem. I'll, I'll give you it for this price, and we just said, "Okay, let's let's do this." And uh, best financial decision, little did I know at the time, that we ever made. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you didn't mention is also your book, uh, "Why Humans Build Up," which uh, I love, and I have taken my daughter through it. We flipped through all the images of all the skyscrapers and stuff, so that one's a, a good shout out for our audience, I think, who's into the built form environment and all that stuff. And yeah, it's, I, I appreciate it's, you mentioning that. That was from yeah. my kids. It was, it's a it's a, a book for young readers, but a lot yeah. of parents have enjoyed it, and it was yeah. my kids' inspiration. Dad, why do humans build up? Why do we even build towers? Yeah, yeah, it's an awesome book. My daughter and I go through it all the time. She's she's six and she she loves it. It's it's so I, I really appreciate that one. If anyone's looking for a for a, a good good one for uh, to read with the family, and you mentioned and before we dive into your new book. You mentioned London and, and maybe this is a good segue. Do you think that like London is, is often used as an example as one of these places where, you know, young people can't live, they can't start a family there. You know, you will kind of just live in, in a flat and live, you know, to be close to the financial core and close to potential mates. But then later on, you move out of that, that area. Are we going the same way here in Canada from your perspective? Because I know you draw a lot of comparisons in your book to different places around the world. Yeah, we do. And actually, I even use London and Britain as an example of one 
one uh, thing we should try as one uh, good thing. But yeah, it feels like that, especially Vancouver and Toronto. You know, I, I mean, I compare it in the book. What one comparison I did is I talked to a nurse in the GTA who uh, moved from Calgary, and I think she moved in 2001. And she'd owned a home in Calgary. You know, this is an essential worker in society. We, we need our ER and OR nurses and all nurses in hospital, for that matter. But she moved to uh, to the GTA, and she found herself in a terrible renter out in, uh, rental out in Mississauga. And that's not to disparage Mississauga, but just to say, with daycare and her downtown Toronto hospital, she spent, you know, two, three hours in the car every day. And all of her fellow nurses were in a similar situation. So they were either considering you know, leaving essential nursing and, and working either in real estate or in uh, in uh, plastic surgeons' offices doing uh, Botox. So you, you had a similar thing in London, which is a city we don't want to emulate because they've essentially priced so many people out, with the exception that Britain decided, look, we can't keep losing nurses and firefighters and police officers who have to commute more than an hour each way because we can't keep our essential services staff. So they started about 20 years ago building what they call a, a, in, in Britain, they call it key worker housing. And this is something that the Toronto Board of Trade in particular and, and Wood Green, uh, you know, the large uh, nonprofit housing provider in Toronto have been calling for. Uh, so uh, to get back to your original question, Daniel, yeah, I think uh, Toronto and Vancouver, especially, but a lot of other Canadian cities are, are inching there, but Toronto and Vancouver, especially getting a lot like London where, you know, your regular people essentially can't afford to live in the place they work. Yeah, it's so it's so unfortunate because we've we've started to see that already with the tech space and and brain drain and and you know that's that's happening on a national scale because you know even the interprovincial migration that we see right where it's a flight to affordability to one of the Atlantic provinces or one of the prairie provinces but there's not that same economic or business opportunity there for for younger people with startups or young people trying to pursue a career before we get too into the weeds, because I've got some some bigger questions and some existential stuff I wanna I wanna pose to you, Gregor. I, I do wanna I do wanna go back uh, to the beginning here and just plug the book again. So it's called Our Crumbling Foundation, uh, with subtext that says how we solve Canada's housing crisis, which is I think the question on everyone's mind from realtors to renters to politicians. You wrote a book that says it has the answer to that. So maybe now's a good time before we kind of, again, get get too carried away here to maybe get a little bit of a quick synopsis, a Cole's notes, if you will, as to as to the book. Again, we don't want to give too much away because we expect everyone listening to go and to go and read, a, read, buy and, uh, and read a copy of it. But maybe give us some high level points from the book, like, you know, talk about maybe how the system is broken and some of the key ways that you see we can work our way out of this from the perspective of a journalist that's been covering stuff like this and things that affect Canada, Canada's economy and housing for the past several decades. Yeah, I, I appreciate that uh, uh, overview. Uh, I, I essentially looked at three big things, Nick, in the book. Uh, the first being the, the human cost of high housing co uh, costs, because uh, you know, as a, as a daily journalist, I hear from a lot of people. I hear a lot of feedback, just like you guys do whenever you put your podcast out. And I'm sure both good and bad. And one of the things I've heard for years is people saying, and I'm not going to, I'm, so I'm Gen X. I'm 50 years old and I don't want to pick on the, the boomers, but people who are, let's say 10, 15 years older than me saying, come on. Well, in my day, it was high interest rates. 
it, this is just the latest challenge. People need to work through it when they're young, you know, be careful with their money. It's not any different fundamentally, but I, I thought, no, actually it is because I'm hearing that, well, not to mention these homeless encampments are popping up everywhere. And also, but I'm seeing people and hearing from people every day who are getting rent evicted and not just young people for that matter. A lot of seniors, you know, who, whose pension checks just don't cover it anymore. And then they get evicted from their longtime rental and they've got nowhere else to go. But the, the point is, so the first third of the book, uh, interspersed is the human cost, you know, like a family in Nova Scotia who moved back from Ontario be closer to family during the pandemic and ended up literally living in RVs in campgrounds because they couldn't find a place to rent that they could afford uh, to, you know, a working nurse in Halifax who's living in a van because uh, she got evicted and couldn't find a rental. This happens all over where I am in BC. Last time I was in Toronto, I, I spoke to a lot of people in similar situations. So on the, on the, the, the one hand, I wanted to focus on the, the human cost. And that also includes people, you know, working good, middle class, upper middle class jobs. Like I've talked to doctors who've made family doctors, GPs, who've made the decision not to come here to Victoria where I live. And the one issue they raised was the price of housing. And if you're doctors and you're engineers, I've talked to young engineers too, if they can't afford a city, like you were mentioning earlier, Nick, what does that do to the rest of the city? And so that's the first third is I try to focus on the human cost. Uh, the second third is how did we get here? Like how did, for instance, between 2001, and 2021, the price of an average house across the country go up 365%, while the cost of everything else went up 43%. I mean, that statistic, and by the way, it's worse in Toronto and Vancouver, of course, but, but how did that happen? Like, why didn't housing prices stay roughly in line with the, the, the rise and everything else? Because if they had, we'd be in a much different situation. You know, we wouldn't have so many people struggling to find that. A place to live. Well, unfortunately, and Dan, I go into Dan and I, Dan and I, likely wouldn't have a podcast if that was the case. So uh, yeah. we wouldn't be we wouldn't be here having this conversation with you, which I guess yeah. I would happily sacrifice for housing affordability. But uh, yeah, no, yeah. It's, I, it's, it's and I hear you, Nick, because I wouldn't have a book either. <laughs> but but I think you know the fact that you guys can build a podcast around this, and you can. I mean, I, I've gone back through a lot of your old episodes. It shows how difficult this is this is there is, and, and sorry that gets to the third focus of this book which is what do we do about it that's the subtitle how we solve canada's housing crisis and just uh so that nobody uh who's listening here thinks this yahoo thinks he's got some simple answer there is no simple answer <laughs> there are literally dozens that's a huge focus of the book is what do we do and the, the short answer is we have to do a lot and it's going to take years truthfully, probably decades to, to really solve this, but we need, we're starting to act now, but we really need to get going. So I foresee many years of your podcast ahead, frankly. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So I guess then maybe I'll start off with a, with a quick question. And then I have another one as a follow-up to some of the stuff that you just said. You, you mentioned you've traveled a lot and I imagine you've interviewed people from all, all over the world. From your perspective, are we in the worst position in the world from a housing crisis perspective? Like, or... Where would we? Where would you rank us comparatively? I think we're pretty close, and of course, Dan, that's with the huge proviso that I'm not. I'm not trying to compare, you know, uh, Canadians who have a roof over their heads and universal health care to somebody who is uh, living in a in a you know in, in a tin shack in Mumbai, where I've been, or or, right. or Calcutta, or any of these places. So let's just in case anyone thinks that I'm I'm totally blind as to the suffering in a lot of the world. No, I'm not suggesting that. But in terms of developed countries and what's been happening in the last five to 20 years, we're pretty close. We're, we're getting there. And I mean, of course, 
places like London, Sydney, Australia, are, those, those cities are similar to us. Auckland, New Zealand, a number of other countries are suffering similarly. So no, this isn't only a Canadian problem, but we have some unique features like our population growth rate, which is a touchy one, but we just have to talk about the fact that Canada has added more than a million people last year, maybe similarly this year, even though they're not all uh, permanent immigrants. That's a big factor. And so I would say we are one of, we're of the developing countries struggling with high housing costs. If we're not at the top of the list and we're very close. Fair enough. So then I guess the next question would be, you, you know, you mentioned a, a handful of different ways that we could solve this problem, but you also mentioned that, and I, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is how real estate such a long run solution, right? Like you can't just build a house and even high rise developers, it takes six years. So we've always felt that investors in the podcast, uh, regular investors, the mom and pop investors can become these citizen developers who can take existing housing supply and cut it up into multiple units. And they're able to deliver housing at a cheaper rate, creation cost rate than a high rise developer might. And more with more agility. With all that being said, like, if you were to estimate how long it takes us to actually get to a point where this is not a problem that and not and not the most important problem that we're facing as a nation, how long do you think that that takes? You know, my personal uh, feeling on that, Dan, is that it's going to get worse for the next few years because you look at our, our projected population growth uh, versus our, our housing starts. And, you know, fair credit to everybody who's a builder or working on a crew out there. We know you're going gangbusters. Like, we see you working all over the place. Our annual construction starts, if you look at them compared to a decade ago, are up. I know it's eased off in some cities over the last uh, year or two, but like people are working hard and trying to build more housing, but I still think it's going to get worse for the next few years. I, I mean, this is just such a broad guess, but I feel like in a decade, uh, we'll start to see serious improvements if, if we make a number of important changes and maybe in two decades, really good improvement because of course it's taken decades to get here. I think that's one of the things that it's just been like a slow, uh, burn, or maybe it's it's like that pot uh, on the stove that's boiling. Because if you look at 30 years ago, for instance, we had we had 10 million fewer people, so we were about 30 million versus 40 million. We've only built uh, 350, 355,000 purpose-built rentals in that time for, for uh, taking on 10 million new people. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we should have built 10 million new or even even 5 million new, but but the numbers just don't keep up. The, the Canadian construction hasn't kept up. So I, I like your point about people like me in, in big old houses like this. Uh, the B.C. government, uh, for better or worse, has recently changed laws that will allow me uh, in my municipality of Oak Bay, right outside of Victoria, to switch my 25, 2600 square foot house. I could fairly, relatively easily, uh, you know, add a suite, whereas I couldn't before uh, a year or two ago. And I know it's only a small uh, example, but but there's a lot of room for, as you say, maybe benevolent investors to make to do some good in the interim. Yeah, sorry, cut cut out there for me for a sec, uh, Gregor. But I I do want to just pose the 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 question. So like we 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 talk about the idea of a renter's economy a lot on the on the show here, and all stemming from the idea of you know late stage housing cycle. Bringing it back to what you said about brain drain, you know we we've kind of got I don't even we wouldn't even call it brain drain. We just have no one going into the skilled trade. So the housing that we need to build. We don't have the actual infrastructure to support it in the built environment. So going back to the late stage housing uh, cycle and renter's economy, what does that mean to you as a guy that's 
seen what a renter's economy looks like in when you were living in London. Is that where we're headed? At least in, let's say, some of the major cities or, or major markets across the country? It's a really good question. I, I've, I've wrestled with that a lot, Nick. And to be honest, I, I don't know because I, I've wondered about that. I, I could see it. Uh, sorry, this isn't a great answer, but I could really see it going either way in this country because we have so much land. And if, if all levels of government treat this seriously, we may still remain a country of majority owners. But I do think, and you definitely see that in younger demographics, that, that, that the proportion of people renting is getting higher. And so actually, I mean, my suspicion in, in the near term is, yeah, it's absolutely going to be more and more of a country of renters. And in some parts of the country, it's been that way anyway. Like uh, Montreal has, has been known for, for decades as a city of renters, and they had available stock and so on. And a lot of successful countries around the world have been majority renters, like like Germany and Austria, for instance. I mean, you don't I don't need to talk to you about Germany's economic output or its high standard of living. And remember, they have been for decades a high uh, a, a country of renters, more than half of Germans uh, rent. And in places like Berlin, it's way more than half. So uh, my suspicion is that uh, we're going to have more and more people uh, especially young people renting. So it, it's going to, it, we're going to have a growing rental segment of society. But in the long term, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still wonder if Canada's population stabilizes at some point or the rate of growth stabilizes, I should say, uh, and construction catches up at some point. Maybe, maybe it's just that that's a hard one to answer. I mean, yeah. so many, I think so many Canadians still want to own that I, I wonder if, if the, the ownership might catch up at some point in, in the decade or so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so funny because to your point on looking at European countries, right? And, and we've actually, we've had Europeans reach out to us and say, I don't know what the Canadian obsession with owning a home is. My friends don't own homes in Switzerland or Germany or, you know, you name it. They go out and start businesses and therefore they save that massive down payment to go and start a business, which ideally would produce income instead of just buying your single family Canadian dream home that, you know, is essentially everyone's biggest liability. So, uh, you know, it, it, it for some reason it always comes back to this obsession Canadians have with home ownership, real estate investing. I mean, one of the episodes that we've got in the works right now is based off of a Royal Page study where by in the next four years, 25% of Canadians plan on buying another investment property. Well, it's just like, okay, well, that's that's great, but there's not enough houses for that many people to invest in. So, you know, investing strategies are going to have to change. And I think real estate will have to change as a whole. And maybe you're right. Maybe this is just a part of the cycle that we ride and, you know, no one gets the Canadian dream for the next 10 years and 10 to 20 years from now, that's, that's back. And we've got more homes and everything's kind of settled down a little bit, but you know, it, it's we're we're in a very tight spot right now because there's a you know it's hard to look at a a road. It's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when there's 15 different things that's blocking that light, as you said, right? There's no one solution out of this. Yeah, exactly. And and I would add to what you said, Nick, because I've heard those questions too. You know, from German friends and and people from other or, or somebody I knew from New York City say, "Why are you guys so obsessed with, as you said, single family home ownership?" And I think the answer to that is twofold. I, I think in a healthy rental market, uh, people should uh, personally, arguably, and maybe this is uh, uh, hypocritical because I'm sitting in my comfortable single-family single home, yeah. but I do think a lot of people uh, would be wise to relax about that idea of ownership and just be okay with being a renter. 
But on the other hand, in so many cities like Victoria, where we've, for the better part of the last five or 10 years, we've had the lowest vacancy rate in the country at 0.9%. And half the renters I talk to are in old houses where, you know, the, the owner has got this huge incentive to sell. They're not paying that high of a rent. So th they would like to buy just for peace of mind, yeah. like literally for housing security. They know it's so hard to find a place to live. So that's what I would say to people who are in different rental markets or different countries who say, why are you guys so obsessed with owning anyway? Well, in a lot of cases, it's literally people want to have peace of mind when they put their head on the pillow at night just, just to have their own home. It's, it's not even about an investment. It's just because so they're not having – I talked to a woman who was having panic attacks after she got evicted because she just kept getting uh, rejected uh, application after application after application. And for a lot of people, they're just they're afraid of not having any home at all. So that's why they want to own. But in a healthier rental market, yeah, I think I, I think uh, people should be more open to it. Excellent insights there. I So on that note, do you see, because you mentioned the security of tenure of a renter versus uh, an owner and how, you know, if, they, if their mom and pop landlord exercises that, that will to sell the house because it's deferred maintenance or they're not getting enough rent, like this is a huge crisis that we're seeing happening in, in the GTA with municipalities even cracking down on rent evictions, right? The idea of rent evictions. Do you think that purpose-built rental could help to improve that security of tenure like from an economic perspective the the maybe the best way that i think about it is like adam smith had in, this concept in the wealth of nations which was the specialization and division of labor right and i think that as you have the next generation of home users let's call it coming up a lot of them don't want to own homes and maybe they're they're not they've give if, if they've capitulated on ownership how do we deliver them secure tenure of of rentership? And do you think that we're heading in the right direction with a lot of this purpose-built rental housing starts that we're seeing in Canada? Yeah, uh, well, I do uh, is the short answer. Yeah, and purpose-built rental housing tends to be, especially when it's new and you've got a healthy supply of new uh, purpose-built rental coming on the market, it tends to be a lot more secure. And uh, I don't know if you want to get into the very controversial issue of uh, rent control, which, by the way, guys, I don't have a firm opinion on. I think Fair. it really depends on the market yeah. and the time. But if you want to talk about rent control, that's fine. But I, but in general, I think purpose-built rental is going to be better. Uh, I also think it's worth noting that in this country, uh, we used to build. So never mind what you believe a country should do or what the role of government should do for a second. But in this country, when we had much greater housing stability for about 40 years after the Second World War, when governments at all level built a lot more public housing. And think of, if you want to think of it as a social safety net, fine. But but we really stopped doing that in a huge way in about the mid-90s when the federal government tried to balance its budget. They had huge deficits and they, they tightened their belts. And, and since then, we haven't had, uh, up until the last couple of years, huge investments in public housing. So that was a big part of it, too, that uh, purpose-built public uh, rental housing also serves a purpose. But in general, to your question, Dan, yeah, I think uh, purpose-built uh, housing by, you know, the experts who, who have it as a long-term investment, it typically is a better way to go. Yeah. And just to contextualize that for the listeners, like you can't uh, do a rent eviction or an eviction for personal use on a building over four units because obviously you're not going to go take over your uh, apartment building for your own use unless, uh, I mean, yeah, it would be creative, I suppose, if one attempted to. But um, I guess just to, to compound on what you were mentioning about these past public housing initiatives and also the National Housing Act and CMHC's role, like during the, you know much of the, the past century f it, through the MERB program, 
you're obviously in touch with policy and given, you know, your experience in interviewing and speaking with politicians and that sphere, do you think that we're approaching a similar like level of incentives? I know they're gradually, but like, let's think about CMHC's MLI select program, the um, RCFI program, which I, I think they've rebranded now and now opened up to universities to build student housing. Like, do you ever, because th- I wasn't around during that period of time, do you think that we're going to get you know, a similar suite of incentives and a comparable level of incentives for people to to be wanting to create housing and for it to make financial sense to create housing and that that the, the private sector plays a role with the help of or with the support of the public sector through these programs? Yeah, I hope so. The short answer is uh, I hope so. And, and some recent changes look like they're going in that direction. And, and and I have to just be honest, I, I don't know whether they will, but I hope so, because I've talked to a lot of private builders. And let me give you an example, uh, one here in Victoria, Arise Development, they build a lot of housing. They build a lot of, uh, right now, just uh, observations, it looks like they're building a lot of six-story purpose-built rental apartment, you know, which has been much more uh, possible in British Columbia since the building code changed in the last 10 years to, to allow wood frame to go from four to six stories. So Arise is building a lot of that. But, but I was talking to uh, Luke Mari, one of their principals, and he was saying to me, why, when interest rates were shooting up in uh, the pandemic, why, for instance, didn't uh, the government, through CMHC or any other mechanism, offer private builders who, who made specific commitments to build affordable housing, you know, below market rate housing, why didn't they offer, uh, offer them uh, favorable interest rates. So there's been a lot of questioning. Why hasn't there been more uh, uh, favorable policy financing, that kind of thing? And, and I know there have been a few recent announcements. Uh, here's hoping they encourage more construction. Uh, but I've sure heard a lot of frustration that more wasn't done, especially over the last three, four years. I, I chat with Luke uh, a lot on uh, on Twitter, actually, as well. He's he's definitely got some great commentary in regards to policy, and I mean the developers' perspective, especially you know smaller infill developers who can have very meaningful in- incremental changes, are important voices in this in this dialogue. Did you have another question on deck there? Yeah, Gregor, I want to go back to um, when you said those endearing things about your kids, specifically the fact that they're probably screwed. <laughs> what, uh, for, for the younger people listening to, to the show, what, what, if any kind of advice can, can you give to them as they try to approach and navigate, uh, the, you know, these treacherous waters of, of housing, whether it's rent, uh, and, you know, just, just as an aside that the next episode we're recording is, about rent, renting versus owning. And, and there's, you know, all these ridiculous stories coming out about, you know, the, the guy in Calgary who takes a flight to UBC or, you know, the, the boomers that are retiring on cruise ships because they can't afford to live in Canada anymore or people living in hotels because they can't afford to live in, in Toronto or Vancouver anymore. So what do you know, if you're 20 to, to 35 and you haven't entered the housing market yet because they're not selling three hundred thousand dollar properties in the lower mainland anymore. What do you what do you do? What, what what's your what's your advice for someone in that situation? I, I missed a bit of your question, Nick, but I, I think I got the thrust of it. Is what, what's the advice to those people? Like you say, there are no three hundred thousand dollar houses in uh, the city of Vancouver anymore. That's for sure. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of things you have to do. You have to prioritize what's important to me. Like where do I rank security? versus opportunity. I don't mean that those always have to be opposite things, but 
Uh, also, what, what do I want in terms of housing? Like a lot of us grew up just presuming and expecting that we live in a single family home. What, one of the best things for me was moving to England and, and living in a, a, not even a town home, but just terrace row housing and realizing, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with this. And it, and it you know, it's way more efficient use of land. Uh, there's a lot to be said for, do I need security uh, versus uh, versus opportunity? I mean, maybe maybe your first priority is security, like the absolute thing I need more than anything, you know, maybe more than being in absolutely the right location, neighborhood or or city for, for professional opportunities is I just need to have a secure place to live. And if, and if you decide you can afford that somewhere, like maybe that is your first priority. Also space. I mean, maybe, a, you know, Maybe a one-bedroom condo, you, you can afford to purchase that. And I know a lot of people listening can't, so I want to be careful about that. But if you can, maybe it's worth forgetting about the townhome for a while, especially before you have kids. And I, I know that's another issue. But maybe uh, size, you want to be realistic about your expectations. But but the truth is, Nick, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to offer advice. I'm sorry, I know that's not helpful, but I'm really hesitant because – in, in this big house, we've rented to students at the university for years. Like every September, we'll have a student come and stay in a bedroom. They're essentially a lodger. And every time I put an ad up, I'm just overwhelmed by the number of people. Like, and, and the tears and the desperation of the stories. And my point being that the young people looking for housing, I really, really feel for you. I know it's not everybody, but so many people are struggling. And this is the struggle they're facing that I, I want to be careful about giving outdated advice. So uh, sorry to, to uh, kind of de- dodge that question, no. a bit, Nick, but my, my short answer is in a lot of cases, I just don't know. I don't know what young people are. Yeah. Yeah, no, not at all. And I didn't mean uh, to put you on the spot there. It's something that Dan and I have been trying to answer for, you know, 170 episodes at this point. And yeah, the, the, the hard part is there's, there's not really any good answer. And then, you know, all of these studies continue continuously come out where I can't remember, I, I think it was a CMHC or a StatsCan report, but the one, Daniel, remember where the best way to ensure that you're going to be a homeowner is if your parents were homeowners. Well, that immediately wipes out, you know, a large portion of the population. You know, I, I think I think what I took from you and, and my own opinion, and, and I think the opinion that we've developed on the show is that it's going to be a changing of expectations, right? You're not going to, you know, it used yeah. to just be, hey, like, you know, I'm 20 years old, time for me to buy my first place. And I'm, you know, about three houses from now, I'll have my dream home. Or you went and bought your dream home right away. Well, that that's that's just an impossibility at this point. Uh, you know, a lot of people will never have their dream home. So I think you're right. It, it's going to come down to changing expectations and having a bit more of a a world view on, on something like that, right? Where you said, hey, I lived in London. It, it was fine. You know, I didn't think about housing every two seconds. And and, you know, doing research for that other episode that I'm mentioning where people are living in a hotel, that all sparked from a a news clip about a hotel hotelier in, in Toronto talking about how he had a lot of people living there for years. And then you look at all the comments or people that uh, from around the world, whether it be Central Europe or the Southern States or wherever, and they're like, yeah, this happens everywhere. So maybe we've just been a little sheltered and almost had it too good in Canada for too long where, you know, the Canadian dream was just, Hey, like, don't worry. Everyone gets a house, you know, add inflation, immigration, lack of construction and lack of skilled trades. And all of a sudden that dream completely disappears and has to be reimagined. And now maybe that same dream can be, I own a unit in a house, 
right? So those flats in London that used to be, you know, one wealthy person's home now have three or four units. Yeah. Maybe that's what we're headed to. Well, a lot of those can be really nice too. I mean, you know, in Victoria, we've had a lot of those very, very British style city, at least it was for years. And you had a lot of these old mansions that were built a hundred years ago. And, and in some ways, Victoria was ahead of other places in that they, they had to be repurposed into apartments and, and separate flats or condos decades ago. And, uh, and a lot of them are super nice, but I, I agree, Nick. I mean, in Canada, basically for decades anyway, especially for those of us who are, let's say, older than 40. I mean, we've had it good compared to most countries around the world. I mean, you could say even a bit too good. Like, we've had so much space, and we took it for granted. I mean, I remember the first time, the reason I moved to, to London to work for the BBC World Service, but I went to Scotland several times as a kid because my parents, my parents were immigrants. They immigrated from Scotland. And we'd go every couple of years and visit families. And I remember having, I didn't even know, I wasn't even aware of it, but I had this kind of almost snooty Canadian attitude. Like, look at the way these <laughs> poor people in the old country live in their tiny little houses and stuff. And just because we had so much yeah. space, like I think post-war Canada, uh, once they got it under control and started uh, building, had just uh, an uh, abundance of space. And people lived in huge homes. And, and of course, a lot still do. But I think adjusting that expectation, as one of the, the housing analysts I talked to uh, in the book, Leo Spelteholt said, most people should just do themselves a favor and, and accept that the white, the dream of the white picket fence is gone. So I think it's a fine balance. You don't want to, we, we don't want to accept everything. Like obviously we don't want to accept uh, that you have no rights, that you have uh, no chance of a home, that you, you shouldn't even, you should be grateful even for a roof over your head. That, that's taking it too far. But at the same point in time, a lot of us would benefit from saying, well, you know, we, we don't, I don't have to have a giant sprawling single family home like my parents. Yeah. Not everyone needs the 3,500 square foot, you know, and, yeah. and Dan and I, you know, we've done episodes on this too, where there's, you know, there's that, that space is unused, right? There's the, there's millions of empty bedrooms across the country. And, you know, we've, we've yeah. dropped this stat a lot in the podcast, but Canada's got more per space, more square footage per capita than almost everywhere else in the world, other than the United States and, and Australia. So you know, just because you've got the space doesn't that essentially doesn't mean anything if you're not using it. You know, my parents just moved out of a five bedroom home that they raised their four kids in. So it made a lot of sense for 20 years. My brothers and I all grew up, left the home. They downsized into something that was much more suitable and manageable for them, allowing that house to turn over and be enjoyed by a new younger family with younger kids, et cetera. But, you know, then we go into the part where old people aren't moving on from those houses because there is nowhere for them to go. Right. So again, it just, Wherever you find a bit of a solution, there seems to be a new bottleneck for that problem. Or, you know, you're just yeah. moving the problem around, right? If it's not construction, it's permitting. We've fixed the permitting now. There's not enough labor to get the jobs done. So, yeah. as you know, and, and everybody listening, this is all in the book. So make sure you go check that out. I know we're getting to time here. I'm going to I'm sure Dan's got a, a final question. I've got one kind of unrelated question. Who's the coolest person you ever interviewed outside of this interview, obviously? <laughs> uh, well, oh, you guys are interviewed me, so uh, I guess that, uh, you're yeah, the coolest person we've one. interviewed, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Oh, for me, probably Salman Rushdie. Cool. Uh, or if you're in Britain, Sir Salman Rushdie. Mm. And I interviewed him. I'm thinking about three or four years ago, and uh, it actually wasn't through my day job. It was a local uh, bookstore here in Victoria. Uh, we're we're so lucky in Victoria. We've got some of the best independent bookstores in the country, and Bolin Books. Uh, had Salman Rushdie coming to Victoria. So they, they rented out a theater and the place was packed. You know, I mean, Salman Rushdie needs no introduction. 
And so this is going back about five, six years, maybe 2017, 2018. And I was nervous because, A, I was a big fan of his books. And, B, I thought he had a bit of a prickly reputation, but I wouldn't <laughs> talk to him ahead of time. And it was just going to be me and him on stage in front of a thousand people for an hour and literally nothing else, you know, like no opening act. Yeah, very cool. Just, just me talking to him for an hour. And he could not have been friendlier and more welcoming and more engaging ahead of time. And he was just the friendliest guy, super smart, of course. And we had a great conversation. And then to see, was it last summer or the summer before that he was attacked yeah. on stage in uh, upstate New York it was just so upsetting. But uh, I gather he's recovering and I, and I sure hope, uh, wish him all the best of health. Yeah. But yeah, Salman Rushdie was the best. That's awesome. Funny, we heard you had a bit of a prickly uh, demeanor as well, but you've turned out to be fantastic. I'm completely <laughs> kidding. I'm completely yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, no, don't believe the hype. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's everything that we've got. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I think that you've you've clarified a lot of uh, complex issues, and and you continue to do so in the book that uh, that you were kind enough to provide us an advanced copy of, which is on sale. I think it's it's March fifth, right? And I guess if any right, yeah. yeah, if anybody wants to pick up a copy of that, well, first of all. Um, We'll put, uh, I guess we'll put a contest. We're going to do a giveaway for one of these copies that is sitting in, in our uh, studio right now that'll be available in the show notes. But um, if they, if somebody wants to buy a copy, obviously s- support a, an excellent Canadian author, how might they do that or how might they recommend or how might you recommend? Where would you send them to, to do that? And then also, well, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. I like to support independent bookstores, but, sure. but I mean, honestly, I, I understand. You can also get them at the library as well, but yeah. uh, it, whether it's an Indigo, of course, uh, does a great job supporting a lot of canadian authors so i'd say wherever it's convenient and uh, and thanks for the plug then. fair enough yeah. yeah yeah and gregor where can people find out more about you here his audio might have cut the he's just saying where where can people find out more if they want to interact with you like what platform do you prefer that people follow you on where where might they find you uh, probably, I'm still, uh, despite myself, I sometimes feel it's a bit like a smoking habit. I can't quit, but you'll find me on Twitter slash yeah, X. Yeah. Uh, j- just look for my name. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way. On I'm, yeah, I'm like five packs a day on Twitter at this point, if it's a smoking habit. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just such a good yeah. place for, to digest information and exactly. you get news, but also you can read the thread of, you know, if you ever want to know what the far left or the far right thinks about anything, you just got exactly. go to go to the, and you can find your way in the middle there. Yeah, it's super useful. For, for all its faults, it still, it still serves a purpose. Yeah. yeah, awesome. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.